Hello, everybody. I'm Andreas Lapakis, the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And today I'm speaking with uh, Drs. Kevin Potty and Gary Block and Don Marie Harriet, who have all been involved in a clinical practice guideline for homeless and vulnerably housed people and people with lived homelessness experience. The guideline is published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. So welcome to all three of you. Thanks. Hi there. Hi, Sierra. I'd just like to start a bit about how you got involved in this guideline and your experience with homelessness or caring for people with homelessness. And maybe, Don Marie, can we start with you? Sure. Um, so I do consider myself a person with lived experience or a community partner on this project. And I've experienced homelessness from uh, fleeing abuse and, um, you know, entering into the shelter system and, and uh, falling into poverty. So I currently, now I coordinate a speakers bureau where people have lived experience and sharing the barriers that they face, trying to get out of homelessness, addictions, and various other forms of mar marginalization. And I, so I support people in the community that are currently going through that. And I'm a big supporter of peer support where people can use that knowledge of their experiences and support other people going through similar situations. And so I uh, was asked to be a part of this project in on that capacity. And Kevin? Well, I'm always keen to get involved with guidelines for um, minority and marginalized populations. My background in particular has come with, with doing the uh, refugee health guidelines. And when there was this opportunity arose, I saw some similar benefits, things that we could really make a, an impact in the field. So I think um, there was some funding from um, Inner City Health in Toronto, and I think this is an incredibly important possibility so that, you know, the call for proposals. This doesn't happen that often in these fields, so I was, I was really happy to be part of that. I see that the guideline development is a dynamic social networking process, and this is incredibly important for us because although we have certain practitioners that are currently you know, specialists in small numbers in doing this, I'm really interested to bring not only uh, physicians, but it could even be civil society, it could be um, peer support workers. So I feel like when we develop a guideline, this is not a, you know, not for a simple recommendation, but it was an actual process because we need, you know, more people to be working in this field. And, and for me, that's my, my prime mot motivation. And in your clinical practice, do you care for a number of people who are experiencing homelessness? Yes. I was originally practicing in Toronto, um, and at that time with with uh, more homeless people. Um, in Ottawa, I have a mix. What's interesting is a lot of my refugee patients are either vulnerably housed, and some of them are, are homeless. Um, uh, there's domestic violence even a month ago with one of my uh, my mothers of three kids who ended up on the street. So, and then I have also a number of people that were homeless and have been housed, but remain uh, people with lived experience. And I'm, you know, it's quite a, a pleasure to look after them. And I think that they have lots of good stories and I don't really find it that difficult um, providing their care. And Gary? Yeah, so I'm a family physician in downtown Toronto with St. Michael's Hospital. I have always had a focus on homelessness in my career. In fact, the very first job I had in uh, the medical world was after my first year of medicine helping out with PhD research at Seton House Shelter. 
and really never stopped working with people experiencing homelessness, both in my regular family practice as well as in shelters. Uh, and I was actually involved in establishing the Inner City Health Associates, which is this large group of physicians working with the homeless in Toronto. And, you know, my, my academic work has sort of veered into thinking about what frontline primary care clinicians can do about social issues like homelessness. So the idea of a guidelines is a very natural fit with that. And maybe while you have the microphone, what are you hoping that this guideline is going to achieve and who are the main target audiences for the guideline? So to me, there are really two main targets, right? And, and I think different people probably have different answers to this question. The first target is just sort of the general practicing uh, field of clinicians, right? And, and just sort of medical practitioners, health practitioners in general. I, I think it is really important to, for, for the health world to understand that people who experience homelessness have a different set of, of health needs, or probably even better put, we need to kind of approach those needs through a different lens. And I think that to me is what this guideline starts to do for the general health provider public. I'd say the other really important audience for this is, is people who do a lot of clinical work with people experiencing homelessness. In the sense that I think those of us who've been embedded in the field know that this is a, a very specialized area of practice, but we've yet to really kind of start to define what that specialization is in, in ways that, that we can articulate it clearly. And I think that this guideline also helps us move towards understanding what that looks like. And maybe before we get to the four recommendations, maybe one of you can talk a bit about the, I guess, the epidemiology of homelessness, and maybe actually talk about homelessness and vulnerably housed, the difference. My sense reading the guideline is that, that you folks who have worked in this area are, are observing that the kinds of people who are homeless in Canada have changed fairly dramatically over the last little while. To answer your question about the demographics that's changing, I'm finding that older women are more using shelters now. I'm finding that single working people are using shelters since, well, before, but 2016, rents have just been rising and rising. And I myself, I'm paying 50% of my paycheck, uh, my monthly income to rent. That's vulnerable housed. I'm, I think I'm, I'm secure enough right now, but that's, that's cutting it close. And I think that's what people are finding. And, and landlords are just jacking up the rent. So I'm finding that I'm supporting people in the community where the landlords are saying they want, you know, to move into their units and ask people to vacate and then jack up the rent. So I'm finding, yes, younger people, older women, especially, and just single working people have to find housing together. I'm finding people um, sharing a one-bedroom unit with strangers because they just can't afford a unit on their own. We had a lot of uh, discussion about our use of the term vulnerably housed. I think it went, you know, back and forth. And I, I believe that it's important for the practicing, let's say, even family doctors that don't always realize that a patient that's in front of them could be homeless the next day. And I think this is one of the, the kind of awareness we want to raise. I mean, I just, I've had a, a patient recently who, because he was in low income housing, 
his landlord decided to renovate and basically take the ceiling down while he was sleeping in his bed. And he actually just had to leave. And he basically didn't have the supports and ended up on the street. That's something that happened very fast. And I think this is um, what Don Marie is kind of suggesting, that it's a different world of how, how fast things can change. And I guess we're hoping with our guidelines that, that the family doctors may be watching for this and may be able to, to do something to, to prevent the homelessness. So a naive question about why have things changed recently? Why is this happening more frequently now? I mean, it's a really good question, Andres. I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. I think we've, things have been shifting actually for many decades, right? I mean, we've, we've been living through probably 40 years of dramatically rising inequality, so social, socioeconomic inequality in our society. And this, this is just one of the consequences of that, right? And as much as we have talked about sort of, you know, our, our robust social programs and, and supporting those who are most vulnerable in our society, the fact is that on the ground, Canada's social programs have not improved in most cases, and in fact, in many cases have worsened, which has meant that people have been allowed to slide into deeper poverty. Uh, and I think especially as we get a population that is aging, there's more pressures on social programs, more pressures on on health programs, and we, we just really can't keep up. And when you look specifically at the issue of housing and the housing stock, it's very clear that Canada is way behind in terms of its ability to provide an adequate amount of housing for our citizens, and especially affordable housing for, for people who can't even come close to paying rapidly rising average market rents. So there are a lot of big social forces at play here. I think what's important for us as clinicians is that we really see how those social forces play out on the front lines of care. And we, we see that every day, right? And I think Dawn Marie's pointing to what she's seeing uh, in her sphere of work, and I certainly see it on the front lines of family medicine. And it's scary and it's disturbing. So I guess there's no question that we need to recognize this and deal with this at the front lines. Also, to sort of reinforce Kevin's point that we need to always see this as a big social issue first uh, and a sort of frontline health issue second. At the risk of asking something excessively philosophical here, why do we in Canada consider healthcare a right but housing not a right? Uh, really good. I'm not sure I have an easy answer for you on that, Andreas. Other than to just sort of look again at, at historical forces, right? I mean, there are societies that do not see access to healthcare as a right. We have chosen to latch ourselves onto healthcare as a signature national program. We could certainly do that with housing. And I, I would hope that as people become more and more aware of the true crisis of homelessness, I mean, as it's in our faces every day, right? I mean, the, the number of people living on the streets in Toronto has doubled over the last decade, that we realize more and more that this needs to be as much of a core right, a core social right in our society as access to healthcare is. I can just add, you know, there was no new social housing built since, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. And um, I'm... I was I was talking about peer support, so I've been visiting some of the city shelters to uh, we were training peer supporters to work in the shelters. And there's more and more new shelters or shelters being constructed to have more space, 
so we're creating band-aid solutions instead of creating what people need, and that's housing, stable housing. And I think we're in our recommendations, um, which are coming from, uh, I think, eight different systematic reviews, that there is actually something that can be done. So I, I do, the housing is an incredibly complex topic, but that does not mean that there isn't opportunities now and that we can't advocate for more of these, um, you know, life-saving and uh, health-saving uh, approaches. And so housing, as you, as we're probably going to talk about in a second, is just the start of our recommendations. So why don't you actually continue there and tell listeners uh, what your main recommendations are? I think it's really important that we've created uh, trustworthy recommendations. These are, are explainable from the different stakeholders, from people with lived experience to the clinicians, and I think even stakeholders. We've, we spend a lot of time engaging, like I think into the uh, 200 range, over 200 people to make sure we're listening to them about their needs and we're listening to them about whether or not the guidelines can work. And we've done um, implementation studies to look at the feasibility, the acceptability, the equity. This isn't always talked about as much with a regular guideline set, but we spent a lot of effort on this because if we're going to put something on the table in this challenging field, we need to make sure that for the clinicians that this is going to work and for that for the patients that they're going to accept it or they're going to at least believe that this is a good direction. And I think that this is kind of the prelude that led up to the recommendations. This is really a special situation and we want, it, we want this to really work. It, it, it must work. And so I think we spent the extra effort and I'm going to stop there and let maybe someone else talk about the recommendation. I guess to... Again, to, to understand these guidelines, I would have to understand that we first went through a very careful selection process in terms of topics through a, a, a kind of long, a carefully done, drawn out Delphi selection process. And interestingly, the, uh, the topics we chose to hone in on were not necessarily those that I would have thought, right? When I, when I, as a frontline clinician, I would have said, oh, well, we need a guideline on something like foot care or hepatitis C care. And what rose to the top were actually sort of these much bigger overarching interventions, right? Make a lot of sense, right? So looking, first of all, at simply finding access to housing and what we can do as frontline clinicians to help people access housing, right? Second of all, uh, helping people access income, recognizing that there really is no homelessness without poverty uh, and that in order to be housed, you always need some sort of access to income. Then looking sort of towards the kind of incredibly overrepresented conditions amongst people who are homeless, so, so a more medical lens, specifically around mental illness, and understanding that there are a hugely disproportionate number of people with severe mental illness who experience homelessness, and trying to understand uh, whether or not case management, different types of case management have appropriate evidence behind them, to recommend as an intervention for people experiencing homelessness. And then the final set of recommendations really look at substance use, right? So again, recognizing that there's a huge proportion uh, of people who experience homeless, homelessness who use substances. And we look specifically at the evidence around opioid agonist and, and substitution therapy and harm reduction interventions like supervised consumption sites. 
Um, so these were really the kind of five core areas that the guidelines looked at. So could you give us a little detail on the first recommendation? I think that when you bring a non-traditional, say, social, more of a social recommendation into the, say, a family practice, we, we have to be a little bit more sophisticated in terms of helping that practitioner have the resources of, of how are they going to do something around the housing. So we definitely spent time and there's actually a certain amount of, of networks and support phone numbers that are that were that are present and are developing and that we believe that when the physician has access or that someone in the physician's office that this could be something that is something actionable so as a as a physician we're not trying to say you know buy somebody you know a home we're trying to say this person needs linkage to a program for permanent supportive housing and this is much is much more sophisticated because there's a support person there's a lot of things that have to be organized to make this uh, this housing work, and that's what the programs recognize. Working on this project, it, I've become very aware, and I've, I've already had three people that I've been able to action on this item because I am watching for it now. So I've become aware, and I've and I've, I'm figuring out how actually I can make sure that these that people find housing. So I think it's a very um, it was a very positive feeling as a physician to be able to 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 make this intervention. And I think, like Gary said, this is like one of the things that will change a lot of the other, you know, medical and healthcare that you're going to deliver. So I have to be honest. So when I read the recommendation, which was to link my patients up with someone or a group that's experienced and knowledgeable about doing the best job possible to find my patient stable housing, I was trying to reconcile that with what Don Marie and the rest of you said is that there is no housing. One of the reasons there's more homelessness is because there's less housing there was. So help me close that circle, if you will. There are connections in terms of um, certain organizations or shelters that have connections to units with priority housing. And that's that's the thing about networking and finding out um, where there are places but what I wanted to add, really, um, from living in a shelter and finding affordable units, when when they are found, one of the issues, and I think this can go with what Kevin was saying, is that then they're seen as housed and they don't have the supports and to maintain that housing. Um, a lot of people may not have the skills to do grocery shopping, laundry, you know, maintain their lives with their life skills. So. Having that connection for people, that support, maybe for several months, even up to a year, either through a peer worker, some shelters have a community liaison. Um, those are the ways that we can keep people housed. But in terms of answering your question, there are places. It's housing is um, at a low vacancy rate now, but um, there are some places that are people are connecting to. And can I just ask you about people that are in rural Canada? Because you do say, or at least I read you to say, that there's an increase in homelessness and vulnerably housed people in rural Canada. What I wasn't sure of was, do those people tend to migrate to the bigger cities or do they stay in their rural communities? And if they do, are there supports for them? We received this feedback from a lot of our investigators from um, outside of cities. We had, we were a little bit more urban focused at the beginning. 
And I think what really is going on here is that people are, you know, falling homeless in an area that has virtually no resources. Like an urban area may have some programs, some resources. So what's happening is people living in rural areas that find themselves in this scenario, they, they, they just don't have a development to handle the situation. So yes, there are homeless people, but the big difference is, no, there's not really, you know, the programs are not yet developed. I'll just echo that. I mean, homelessness in rural areas is different, but it's also not different to to what happens in urban areas, right? There are people who are living, who are living outside, who are living on the streets of small towns, who are couch surfing or squatting on land or moving between places. You know, I mean, we have to remember again that, you know, people living on the streets or in shelters is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to homelessness. So most homelessness is happening actually within sheltered spaces, but people who are just very unstably and insecurely housed. And we see that full spectrum within rural areas as well. And I will agree with Kevin that the infrastructure and resources are uh, far less available in rural areas than they are in urban areas. They're certainly inadequate in ur- urban areas, which you know leaves us with the question of what's going on in rural areas and what's available, and there's very little so this is absolutely a huge issue. And I, I think we try to walk the line in the guidelines of allowing space for that reality, right? Of recognizing that there are uh, healthcare spaces that are have better or worse access to resources around things like housing and income supports and case management. But we also try to point to you know, what, what, what I think we see is a minimum necessary access to resources and a minimum availability of resources. And those are both, both direct support resources for people experiencing homelessness and for clinicians working with them, as well as sort of the bigger social resources of just the housing stock, right, which comes back to what you pointed to as well, Andreas, around your question of closing the circle. I mean, my thought there is we cannot close the circle on housing without having access to housing. And again, this is a huge conceptual piece that we had to grapple with and even figuring out how to represent these recommendations. And I think we are very aware of the fact that, you know, we are putting forward recommendations that in some, in many cases, speak to an ideal that is not realizable without significant social policy change. And you're hoping that this guideline might be an impetus to push us as a society into that change? Yeah, I I would hope that this helps push towards that. I mean, again, these are not social policy guidelines per se, right? I think they would have a different set of recommendations if they were. But I think it it doesn't take much scratching below the surface to to reach the social policy recommendations that lie behind these guidelines. And absolutely number one under those is access to adequate housing. I just want to emphasize that um, I agree exactly, but there's also a certain skills that is not always in existence in rural areas or in certain cities. We, we did our, an implementation uh, survey across the country and asked people about the key uh, barriers to implementing the guidelines. And there's a, quite a variation. We like to think that together the guidelines can bring the different groups um, some, some new ways of practicing, and hopefully the government will support them. But one of the things that I saw, um, and I don't want to necessarily mention the site, but after working in, in Ottawa with um, with the inner city health program, and they have uh, peer support workers 
doing almost everything. It's actually quite, for me, it's quite amazing and it's, there's really good, good things happening. It, you, you seem to feel like that is, this is the way it should be. But then you go to another, like, say, city or a place and you find that there's, that people have never even heard of that and that the, the workers don't really necessarily understand what they're doing with their job. You know, they're paid, but so it's quite a, it's, we have a lot of room for improvement across the country. And I think practitioners or clinicians and other people could potentially, you know, speak up and say, well, we, we need to kind of move this a little bit more in this direction. Can I just, I, I'm worried that we are presenting a slightly over-pessimistic view of what these <laughs> guidelines need in practice. So I, I just want to kind of take a step back from that for a moment in the sense that these guidelines are actually structured to, to be empowering to clinicians despite, you know, the, the social policy environment we work in. I mean, that, that social policy environment exists for many health issues we deal with, right? It's not just this one, although this one, it kind of rises to the fore quite quickly. But, you know, in every review that we did, the, the sort of first recommendation focuses simply on asking clinicians to identify the issue that we're talking about, right? So identify homelessness, identify income security, uh, identify a history of severe mental illness, identify a substance use uh, or specifically an opioid use disorder. And, you know, while that may sound trite in some ways, it's not. This type of screening for these kind of underlying social issues or severe medical issues associated with homelessness First of all, it's, it's not done in many cases. It's not necessarily a routine part of practice to ask about housing or income. Second of all, just starting to, to understand what our patients' stories are, what their social situations are, what their lives are actually like, is an incredibly empowering step towards being able to provide adequate care. And it's empowering for clinicians, but it's absolutely empowering for our patients in the sense that, uh, you know, and, and I know this from reviewing literature on for this guideline, as well as much more deeply around income security, that people appreciate their clinicians knowing about the, the, the conditions, the social conditions in which they're living, about understanding who they are and what their life conditions are. And I think people know intuitively and often very explicitly that until we understand their social conditions, we'll have a very hard time actually dealing with their health conditions in, in a very real way. And so I, to me, in many ways, just having that as a fundamental recommendation for each section of this guidelines is a very easy to implement, but in some ways, you know, in a small way, a kind of revolutionary step towards starting to really incorporate an understanding of what it means to live in a vulnerably housed or a homeless situation. The kind of second stage recommendation on each of the, the parts of the guideline certainly does push us deeper into these issues, right? Helping us access housing, access income security supports, access case management. And that's where you get into the specifics of what's available in your area, what connections can you set up, you know, with other organizations in your community or build into your team, you know, and obviously that's a more intensive and more resource intensive piece of it. It is doable from different levels. And I don't think anyone, there, there's no example actually in the, in the country of perfection on this in any health team that I know of. 
but it's sort of that that's where it gives us something to really strive towards in terms of building real intangible supports to help people uh, deal with their their pressing health situation around homelessness. But but hopefully there there will be a sense from reading these guidelines that there are pieces here that every clinician can take on, that these are imminently doable and realizable, and that our ability to deal with these issues will grow over time. And, you know, I don't think any of us expect that there will be a radical shift in homelessness because of these guidelines, but hopefully there will start to be a shift in the mindset, understanding, and focus of clinicians on the front lines of this crisis. Thanks for that, Gary. Maybe, can I just ask Don Marie, and I don't know whether you feel comfortable talking about whether in your experiences, your family physician or clinician did ask you the kind of questions that Gary talked about or not. So I, um, a lot of my experience after fleeing abuse was spent in survival mode. So I never really connected with a family doctor for quite a while. And then I needed a female doctor. And and then I experienced some addictions. And then I experienced stigma from some medical centers. So I kind of stayed away until I finally met a doctor that understood and was asking those questions through an initiative. Um, so the guideline is definitely a great tool, but there are also other initiatives that are happening with physicians to combat these issues. And so, uh, yes, I was able to find a doctor that I felt very comfortable with. And having, as Gary mentioned, having the doctor having that knowledge of harm reduction, for example, and how they can support me instead of just saying, you know, stay clean, which is not very helpful all the time. And so that definitely helps. And I also, as a person with lived experience, I love working with family physicians and physicians and researchers in terms of I feel they have a lot of power in terms of uh, creating social justice and creating change. And when we're working together, then we're talking about the barriers that we both face when we're trying to navigate these systems. So I think it's very empowering for myself and to have definitely a doctor that knows about resources, that cares, that is willing to listen, that is willing to look at me, not just taking notes and not, you know, I understand that there's limited time for now I'm seeing my doctor, but just certain mannerisms make a, makes a very big difference. I want just to acknowledge that there is a whole section on our guidelines about approach and learning to work more effectively and, and deliver some of these, these this care more effectively. Um, for example, uh, using techniques such as trauma-informed care. So I think this is um, something that we also did reviews on and we are you know bringing forward, maybe not in the, the, the five recommendations that comes out in another section, of, of approaches because we, uh, I think Don Marie said it very nicely that we want to, um, the clinicians and the patients to have a reasonable experience. And sometimes the doctor doesn't know what happened, why that didn't go well. So, or maybe it's, you know, the patient. So it's, so we're trying to also bring that onto the table as well. So it's really just a skill development. I just wanted to mention though briefly because I see that what we're doing is we're like reframing and we're focusing. And I think that this is research, and so there's always going to be more research to follow. So we, we've got a, we got a grant from the Law Foundation of Ontario for what we call the L consult. Uh, L consult will be the legal consult, 
which you will be able to use as almost like an email from your medical record. It's going to follow the same system as the e-consult, which is in nine provinces in the country where a family doctor can ask, get a rapid answer from any specialist now. So we're, we get this opportunity to develop this, this resource for, um, people with lived experience in the same way. So until we brought our guidelines out, I don't think people will be using the e-consult or the l-consult um, very effectively because they haven't really seen the problem clearly, and so they don't know the, what question to, to ask. But I believe this can come, and we we've got you know on, ongoing research and um, you know, practical work to do. I think one of you mentioned that you care for people who have been recent immigrants or refugees, and then also Indigenous people have, uh, or many Indigenous people experience homelessness as well. Maybe I'll let Gary answer that one, and especially around the Indigenous populations, because that's a really important focus question. Absolutely. So there, there is a really powerful reconceptualization of what homelessness means for uh, Indigenous peoples in Canada that's been going on. Uh, this work has really been led by the, the brilliant York University scholar, uh, Jesse Thistle, who created an indigenous definition of homelessness that came out a couple of years ago, which which looks at homelessness not just as, you know, our sort of A-links to B understanding if you don't have an adequate home, therefore you're homeless, but sort of radically shifts what the definition looks like to include a disconnection from land but also a disconnection from culture, from family, from relationships, really looking at the kind of deep impacts of, you know, a centuries-old colonial process that has affected Indigenous peoples in Canada. He developed this definition through extensive uh, consultation and academic work. I mean, it's a strongly evidence-based and, and academically grounded definition. What this then means for frontline clinicians in terms of recommendations is a whole different cup of tea. Uh, and there's actually parallel to the guidelines development process or the guidelines we're talking about today, there was another process also funded by Inner City Health Associates and run by Jesse Thistle and Janet Smiley, another brilliant family physician in uh, Metis Indigenous Health Researcher to lay out a set of guidelines specifically for Indigenous people experiencing homelessness. And I'm, I'm not going to uh, take away the fire on those other than to say that there are, they, they've taken an extremely different approach to, to creating recommendations, one that is very community grounded, grounded in Indigenous research and community-based techniques specifically. And they will be publishing at least an initial commentary on those guidelines imminently. And I, I think we should all be looking as clinicians with some sense of excitement to, to what that commentary reveals in terms of what the outcomes of that process was, uh, because I, I think there it really will be ground shifting in terms of how we deal with Indigenous people who, who experience homelessness. The other piece I'll say just as a bit of a coda to that is that Janet Smiley's work has shown that there are far more Indigenous people who experience homelessness across the country and, and in urban and rural areas than we have acknowledged and then official counts have showed over time. 
that Indigenous people are hugely overrepresented amongst the homeless population in Canada. And, you know, th- this is an issue we really need to be putting another focus on as a healthcare community very specifically. So I'm very excited to see how Janet and Jesse's work uh, plays out within the healthcare community over the next year or two. And just to let listeners know, um, Jesse Thistle and Janet Smiley have written a commentary that's appearing in the same edition of uh, the CMAJ as your guidelines. So uh, they'll be able to read that. Kevin, did you want to comment on refugees? You know, that the terminology here is important because since the United States has changed its policy, um, we've seen a number of what we would call un- undocumented migrants um, that have come across the border into Canada. Of course, we also receive refugees through our asylum and refugee program. And then, of course, there's um, you know, immigrants. But this, um, this I think, especially um, in certain provinces, uh, I know Ontario, we've had a, quite a, a, a change in terms of uh, a lot more people when you don't have any, you know, legal rights, such as undocumented person, they are much more vulnerable and there are much higher chance that they're going to end up homeless. And we did a systematic review on this, on this topic and the experiences of, of this migrant group. And certainly uh, there's, they have major challenges with, you know, culture, food, understanding the system. So th- these, you know, the homeless shelters are not traditionally um, made for newcomers or for settlement. And so we have a, you know, real disconnect going on there. So this is, is being addressed by certain groups, which is great. But I think it's just important for the, again, clinicians. We have to realize that there's young people that could be homeless, a lot of youth. There's a, a lot of, of uh, women and, and mothers. There's, it could be uh, the different migrant populations. So it's, it's something as family doctors, we have to be thinking a lot more about. Maybe I'll, I'll just, um, ask each of you whether there's anything that we haven't talked about that you think is important? Well, I mean, I guess I, I have to say I like the fact that Gary keeps bringing us. There is a lot of positive energy, and I believe there's a lot of opportunity. And I really I really believe um, we have, you know, with our guidelines for refugees, we it totally transformed the confidence of family doctors and um, all of a sudden, we have an incredible number of family doctors looking after refugees, um, where 10 years ago, we never had that. So that's what I'm looking forward to, is, is, is my, my colleagues to be feel more empowered and comfortable and also want to engage, because I think we need you know, extra people here for sure. And that guideline for refugees was published about how long ago? That was published at CMAJ in 2011. And that guideline went on to produce guidelines in the U.S., Australia, and we and and uh, in Europe. So we were able to kind of leverage that, and we even were involved in all these other guidelines in other countries. And I really am quite sure we're going to be doing the same thing with this guideline because no other countries have this guideline yet. Gary, yeah, I'll just say that you know, to me, these guidelines are, are really a starting point. Uh, I think we are entering into trying to get our handle on a very complex area of care in many ways, but also a sort of, in some ways, a kind of genre-shifting area of care, right? And, and I, I think that our recommendations here really point to that again, you know, that, that we're truly bringing a social lens or, or in some ways adding on a sort of social care module to the usual care that we provide. As with 
most guidelines probably. Uh, these guidelines point to more holes in the research than hard answers uh, from the evidence that's out there. And there's certainly a, a call to the research community that's implicit here to say we got we got to start to plug some of these holes and in, in really understanding what works. But they also point to vast areas of just kind of practice transformation that needs to happen, starting with just a, a basic understanding of the health needs of people who are homeless. And, and again, starting to ask questions around that. But then thinking about everything from how we structure our clinical environments, the, the processes that you know, we ask our clients to go through and what sort of barriers those pose or whether or not those are welcoming to people who experience uh, social marginalization to, you know, building up our own skills in things like knowing how to uh, incorporate an experience of trauma into our, our frontline care assessments to building up our ability to help people directly access resources around things like housing and income to, you know, working with people to understand how to combat impacts of broad social forces like racism or histories of colonialism, right? And, and I sort of list these to, to again make this point that we are just at the beginning of really putting in place what I think will be an exciting and hopefully a transformative shift in how we approach care for people who've experienced homelessness, but also people who've experienced social marginalization uh, from a number of different angles. And that's where I get really excited about the potential of these guidelines to, to, to really push how we understand uh, the provision of healthcare in this country. Don Marie? I guess the only thing I would add is I really enjoyed working on this project and I really enjoyed the collaboration and um, everything that I've learned. And it's just, it really strengthens the voice of the people that are being served. And I believe these guidelines will help remove stigma and some of the oppressive practices that are in healthcare. Um, and just to be able to, it's fun to be working with uh, physicians who are trying to create an equitable healthcare system. And I think it's very important and very empowering. And I think um, I'm really excited to see the turnout of these guidelines. And Andreas, the only other piece that I will add is that there is a uh, an article coming out in Canadian Family Physician, which is really geared towards an interpretation of these guidelines for frontline family medicine care. And I, I think it is coming out synonymously with the guidelines or within a month or two of the, of the publication of the guidelines. That's great. So encourage um, listeners to, uh, to look for that. So listen, I've learned a lot. Um, I've, I've actually learned to be more hopeful than I was coming into this, giving me realistic hope. I think it's great that all three of you and all of your colleagues are, are devoting your time and energy and expertise to this, and just uh, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Andreas. I've been speaking with Don Marie Harriet and with Drs. Kevin Potty and Dr. Gary Block. Don Marie Harriet is a Voices from the Street coordinator with the organization Working for Change in Toronto. Dr. Gary Block is a family physician at St. Michael's Hospital and Inner City Health Associates in Toronto. And Dr. Kevin Potty is a family physician and clinical investigator at C.T. Lamont Primary Healthcare Research Center and at Breer Research Institute, and he is a professor of family medicine at the University of Ottawa. To read the clinical practice guideline for homeless and vulnerably housed people, 
and people with lived homelessness experience, please visit cmaj.ca. There you can also read the commentary from Jesse Thistle and Dr. Janet Smiley. Both articles are also linked in this podcast's description. If you haven't yet subscribed to CMAJ Podcasts, we highly encourage you to do so on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast app. This way, you'll be notified every time we publish a new podcast episode. And let us know how we're doing with our podcast by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Andreas Lapakis, Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ, and thanks for listening. <music>